this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have the co-founder of Aragon, Luis Quende, with me. Luis, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So Aragon is a project I've wanted to get on base layer for months, months and months and months. Um, and why? Because I am so interested in this idea of DAOs and governance and how you get large groups of people, of entities, of algos, of all sorts of different co-ops working together uh, to come up with a way to have a distributed and decentralized system work. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And as everyone knows on my show, Luis, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself uh, before uh, Aragon, um, how you got into this world. And then I want to briefly discuss some of the things you've done, specifically Stampery, uh, which made blockchain timestamping accessible. So if you could give us a little bit of a background about yourself, and then we're going to go into Aragon deeply and tell people what you guys do. Yeah, sure thing. So I got into crypto um, in 2011, and it was uh, Bitcoin what got me in. Of course, like in 2011, there wasn't anything else but Bitcoin. There wasn't crypto, um, it was just Bitcoin. And what got me in is the sense that you can rebuild the financial primitives uh, and the financial system um, with these new tools that are so empowering for people. So instead of having um, basically oligarchies uh, in power and having this huge wealth concentration, we may be able to have a, a system, a society, where we're able to basically have more fairness and better wealth uh, distribution. So, of course, right now, I think crypto is probably doing the opposite. Um, but, but in the long haul, we all agree that these systems will make it for a, for a fair world. And so um, I got into that, built a couple um, Bitcoin startups. Uh, and then 2016, I got into, into Aragon. I founded Aragon. And uh, it was after the realization that Bitcoin was great, but Ethereum enable things that were never possible with Bitcoin, such as human coordination at the scale. Right. Um, and so, Stampery, uh, what is, you, you before you did Aragon, uh, Stampery was there, and that made blockchain timestamping accessible. What does that mean? So basically, one of the applications uh, that, I, that I think are interesting about Bitcoin is that you can send money, but you can also have an immutable record of anything that you that you really want to have an immutable record of. So basically you can send money and that is that is there forever, that you have a transaction there forever in the blockchain, but the same property that is uh, immutability and censorship resistance, you can apply to basically files as well. So you can have an inbreakable, immutable proof that a certain file existed at a certain point in time. And so that was put with a stampery, basically a blockchain time stamping. We had a bunch of ideas around, for example, replacing notary publics with this technology. Um, and so I think we were too early in, in so many things, but I think the technology, it was just like, you know, uh, probably the best use case of Bitcoin after value uh, store, which is the main one still. All right. So let's talk about your inspiration for a little while. So in reading, it seems that Ronald Coase and his amazing paper, The Nature of the Firm, and Yokai Benkler's Linux and the Nature of the Firm were really inspirational to you and your co-founder. What was learned in, in those readings and what has been the impact? Yeah, so when, when I was um, a CEO of my one of my first startups, I, I thought, you know, wait a minute, like 
why are why are companies this way? Why why do, do you create startups? Why do you tend to have companies supposed to use like collaborating with like super large group of people that maybe you don't trust so much? Um, and so I got into reading these papers and they were very interesting. So the first one, just uh, the nature of the firm, argues that in firms you can have more trust because you basically uh, build a smaller teams and or they can even be like extremely big teams and like multi uh, multi like national corporations. But even with that, you still have like kind of the same umbrella and the same principles and the same you know like payroll structures uh, and the same computing systems, all of those things, right? Uh, which enables you to create a lot of uh, to reduce a lot of transaction costs because you have expectations of you know how your coworkers work um, and what do they do and what are the hierarchies. Um, and so that's why really firms exist in the first place, supposed to use having like super kind of um, disorganized chaos for for creating things and building things together. But then Linux and the nature of the firm on the on the other side um, was more about the fact that you can still have firms uh, or networks that operate as firms and still retain the same kind of culture, still retain the same kind of expectations and trust, um, but they can be much larger. And so, for example, open source communities. And that was that was kind of um, mind-blowing for me because you can basically have the best of both worlds. You can have a huge decentralized organization that employs or indirectly employs thousands of people all over the world uh, to work towards a mission, but you necessarily need to apply all the old world or like traditional world concepts of like, you know, having people in payroll, working full-time from the same headquarters and all of that. And so I think it was an interesting kind of mixture of both worlds. So I've theorized that distributed and decentralized systems, blockchains, digital assets, crypto, whatever you want to call it these days, was really not possible until we had technological innovations, i.e. the internet, and we had hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of people who were able to get online and connect with each other. Obviously, there are issues with that, with centralization and with large companies controlling the data flow. But would you agree that where we are today would not be possible if it wasn't for the last 30 years of innovation and regarding the internet and access to mobile devices? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are building on so many layers of innovation uh, right now. So like even stuff like web applications, um, they they were not there 10 years ago. Like we couldn't have decentralized applications if we didn't have like just normal web applications in the first place. All right. So my new favorite phrase is ELI5. Explain it like I'm five. So I want you to give a description of Aragon like you're talking to someone who's five years old, but Aragon empowers you to freely organize and collaborate without borders or intermediaries, create global bureaucracy, free organizations, companies, and communities. So let's unpack that. But again, like I'm five years old, explain to me what Aragon is and the problems you're trying to solve. Yeah, it is definitely hard to explain to a five-year-old um, how we're trying to change like the human fabric and how the world organizes, but I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, <laughs> with Aragon, you can coordinate with anywhere in the world, even people that you don't trust, and you can use that in a like simple tool over the internet. You don't need to like sign hundreds of pieces of paper and care about the uh, intrinsics about like a bunch of jurisdictions and regulations. You can just open the app. You know, choose your co-founders or people that you want to work with, um, assign tokens, and then vote on things, spend money together, and you don't need an intermediary at all. Right. So 
if you could, there's a difference between the Aragon client and the Aragon network. And then we're going to go into some of the issues that you're currently trying to solve regarding governance. But if you could, what is the difference between the Aragon client and the Aragon network? Sure. So the Aragon client is like the admin panel for Aragon organizations. So basically, it's a dashboard where you can run your organization. Um, and then the Aragon network is this set of services that we're trying to build around that client. So basically, one of the things that we realized were very important for, for decentralized organizations is a way to solve disputes in a purely decentralized manner. Because these organizations, they are global by default. They live everywhere. And so they don't have like any specific jurisdiction where you can go to court and, um, and resolve disputes. And so we build this whole protocol around dispute resolution that we are just launching in January. And basically enables these decentralized organizations to provide evidence and then have like a decentralized set of jurors that rule in favor of one party or the other and resolve disputes totally online and in a global fashion. I can't say how fascinating that is enough. Um, and that also could disintermediate the legal system um, if that is able to show that it's working. And so I want to talk more about that. Um, and so getting into the core of Aragon, what are the current issues with governance in blockchains? Um, many projects have had issues with governance in the not too distant past, trying to get people to vote and trying to get them to cooperatively you know, get to a, a milestone or get to a improvement, if you will. And a lot of people in those systems have different incentives. They might have economic incentives, um, especially in a proof of work, uh, a proof of stake uh, system where people might be staking more tokens than others. Uh, they might have more of an economic uh, liability, if you will. So what are some of the common issues um, or kind of the issues and the problems that you're solving in governance with blockchains? What are those problems? I think the main issue with governance in blockchains is that we don't have much experience doing it. And so if you look at like, you know, uh, historical evidence regarding um, human organization, we have like democracies um, and then we have a bunch of other like more like dictatorial regimes over the past years. And we can clearly see that like democracies are way superior, right? Um, with blockchain, we don't have that kind of long haul experience yet. And so uh, we're still like in baby steps. Like, for example, there is uh, one token, one vote. That's like the most um, widespread voting mechanism and governance mechanism right now uh, that has some issues in terms of you know like basically as you have more stake you have you have more power so if you have more capital to deploy to the network you may have more power over the network and so that's an issue in terms of like wealth redistribution for example um, on the other hand it's been working well for the past couple of years in a number of different projects so yeah i think in general it's just that Iterating in governance used to be very hard. That's one of the things that we are doing at Aragon. We're just building all of these tools. So basically, you can iterate on blockchain governance very easily. And we can we can see, we can objectively see what are the mechanisms that work and what are the ones that don't. So it's interesting, more on a philosophical kind of kick, and I've been going more philosophical lately, especially on the show. There was a time and place here in the United States, especially in the early 1900s, where the robber barons the wealthy families of the world were able to dictate political discourse here. Uh, they were able to get presidents elected. They were able to have their will and call on policies. And many can argue that still to this day, even though we try to have more layers of PACs and other different things here in this country, 
I'm curious, are there any kind of parallels between what has happened in the past, not in blockchain world, and what is kind of happening now? Is this economic issue something that can be, uh, is that something that you're trying to really solve? Well, I think on, on one hand, there's the economic issue. And I mean, like, uh, solving wealth distribution in the world is, is a very hard one. Um, but I think the issue that we are all trying to solve is like more specifically, how do we make sure that common goods remain common goods? And I think that that's very interesting because like, if you look at Bitcoin, Ethereum, or other, other blockchains, or even the Argon network, um, those are not exactly common goods. I, I call them community goods because they're not common. They don't belong to the whole to hold humankind, they belong to one community, but how can we make sure that community members can come in and participate in value creation as opposed to, you know, how it used to be like 40 years ago when only a limited number of VCs could get into uh, some deals and then and then that would be it, right? Like the uh, world wouldn't be exposed to that and therefore they couldn't participate in wealth um, creation. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's a very, very important uh, point that we, should try to solve with governance systems so they are not captured by people with the most capital. Right. And so the idea is organize with anyone from anywhere, send a vote with the same ease as sending an email and create your organization in under five minutes. I really want you to talk about that because that is fascinating to me. So aside from that, in 2020, do you think that's the year of the DAO as some people have speculated? So first, you know, talk to us about this organize with anyone from anywhere, send a vote with the same ease as sending an email. And then really, I want to, how does this create your organization under five minutes work? And then the third question is, is 2020 the year of the DAO in your opinion? Yeah, well, we we started this kind of meme around the year of the DAO um, in January 2019. And I think um, 2019 was good for DAOs, but I wouldn't call it the year of the DAO in, in hindsight. Uh, I think we're going to see like the decade of the DAO. If we look at this technology, it's so, it, it's not like additive. It is like basically um, very disruptive in terms of, you know, we're not changing one piece of technology and replacing it with something better. We are changing how people organize. And so that would probably take like um, probably 10 years. And and yeah, on the credit your organization in, in five minutes, uh, that's kind of our core thesis that, you know, organizations, are going to evolve so much, and they are going to be much more, um, much more frugal. You may be, you may be able to create an organization um, in a decentralized network, raise a bunch of funds for it, and it may achieve its uh, its purpose in like literally like minutes or or hours, and then close it down. One example may be maybe you want to pull funds um, for these funds to be staked in one particular blockchain um, when when this blockchain goes live, for example, and then once it's live. Um, and and the funds uh, are returned to the to the stakers, for example. Uh, you may be able to just withdraw them, like the proportional part, and then close it out. Like there are a bunch of use cases that open up when you can have entities that are like programmatically open and then closed, um, and you can basically create code to open and close these entities. It just opens up a bunch of possibilities. And so let's talk about zero uh, point eight Camino. What are the major enhancements and milestones that have been reached with this? So mainly we focus on user experience because uh, our product right now um, is fully decentralized. So basically, when you use it, you need like an Ethereum node, and that's that's everything. Like everything else is loaded in a, from decentralized sources, meaning that no one can can set the product down, um, not even ourselves. And so and so that's great. But on the other hand, we're also introducing some uh, some features here and there that make it faster and easier to use. And so sometimes those are compromises between centralization and decentralization. Um, and also just kind of better user experience. I think that's very important. And something that we've been really uh, investing into is just 
user experience and making sure people can use these products. Because for me, one other part that it is very important in our thesis is that these products, they need to be able to use uh, to be used by anywhere in the world. Otherwise, we're creating another kind of new oligarchy, like the crypto oligarchy. Like who are the persons who are able to interact with these products using like smart contracts, for example, without using a user, user interface? Um, and we don't want to only serve those people. We want to serve the broader audience. And so it's my understanding, and I've been hearing from a lot of projects that when it comes to governance, that instead of creating their own wheel, if you will, uh, or reinventing the wheel, that a lot of them are talking to you. So can you basically plug and play into many different projects that are happening right now? Yeah, especially if you are running a decentralized protocol, uh, we are seeing a bunch of decentralized protocols that are trying to decentralize their governance for many reasons. Like one of them is community trust. The other one uh, is transparency. The other one is just that, for example, if you're building a DeFi product, um, you don't want to have one company or one person who can upgrade the smart contracts because otherwise you are basically being custodial and that doesn't create much trust for your users and also may run you into like legal concerns because it's not a purely decentralized protocol. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, we have like this plug and play solution where you can basically um, put a decentralized organization and give power to your token holders to vote into like protocol upgrades or any like aspect of your decentralized protocol. And that's it's really like five minutes to set it up. And so I want to talk about this notion of kind of judiciary slash defense slash legal in a decentralized and distributed manner. So if I'm in a proof of stake consensus uh, model and I'm a staker or I'm a baker, if I'm in Tezos, whatever it may be, and all of a sudden my stake has been burned because I've been accused of not having my compute ready I'm not, I don't have good uptime. I'm not performing the tasks that are necessary. And so talk to us a little bit about that in terms of dispute resolution. You brought that up briefly. How does that work? What does that look like in a distributed and decentralized system? Is there a judge? I, I imagine not yeah. because that would be a centralized feature, but talk to us about how that works. Yeah, there are actually many, many jurors uh, in this case. And so basically how that will work is uh, you open a dispute, you provide evidence and uh, well, before creating the dispute in the first place, what you have to do before entering into any agreement is you need to set some collateral. And so this collateral is basically your limited liability that you can lose in the in the contract if it gets disputed. Because in this decentralized world, you cannot take anyone to jail. Uh, so you don't have that tool, right? Uh, the tool that you have is incentives and crypto economic incentives. And so you provide this stake into the contract, this collateral, uh, which can be any token. And then after that, when if there is a claim, if there is a dispute that is open, then you submit the evidence. And then there is uh, there are jurors that are working for the Argon network, and there are some of them that are randomly selected, and they review the evidence and they um, vote with a mechanism called commit and reveal, where basically they commit on their answer and they all reveal at the same time so they don't influence each other. And then basically the the winning answer um, is the is the one that uh, rules the the result of the of the claim. If it's not correct or you think it's not correct, you can always appeal to a bigger round. And so basically you start having more and more euros involved in your case until the whole network reviews your case. And that's how it, the version one works. I also want to ask is Aragon, I've seen a lot of projects in the space moving themselves into DAOs. Is Aragon going to move itself or is it already a DAO? I don't want to already a DAO, but it's quite an, an interesting DAO because we raise funds in a centralized entity, in a legal entity in, in Switzerland. And so um, 
there is a DAO that token holders are using to make decisions, but then actually all the decisions are being executed by this legal entity. And so what we want to do, of course, is decentralize funds into a proper DAO that doesn't have a legal entity behind it. Um, and so we are working on that. It's it's really a lot of legal innovation here because you basically have to transfer um, or try to transfer a lot of funds uh, from a legal entity to something that is not a legal entity. And so we are still researching, you know, first, can this second, how do we do it? Um, and third, how do we ensure that still AMD holders um, can spend funds in a, in a way that, you know, is reasonable and, and can extend the projects runaway by still many years? Right. That's super interesting. I definitely want to keep tabs on that. So the last thing I want to talk about, um, and I'd love to get a little bit more in depth, is about reputation. So you guys talk about reputation on your site. Reward contribution uh, contributors with non-transferable tokens for the value they add to the organization. So in Web 2.0, we've seen apps like Yelp, Amazon, eBay, et cetera, have this idea of quote unquote reputation or stars. So if you sold a product to someone else, or if you, you know, were a restaurant and you were delivering or creating amazing food, you know, people could vote on you and basically you could get a higher reputation, if you will. And obviously that's been gameplayed. There's been heroic, uh, kind of ways to play that. So how is reputation earned and distributed in decentralized systems and why is it so important? Yeah, I think reputation is great for some organizations uh, in which you basically want to involve people that are unknowledgeable about certain aspects that other token holders may not be. And so the way I've been seeing that reputation is handled in some of uh, the organizations today is basically... Uh, people vote on it. So uh, there are a couple of ways, but when you when you achieve something, maybe there's a vote um, which rewards you for, let's say, building a piece of software for one of these protocols. And so uh, that earns your reputation. So at the same time, when token holders vote on um, paying out this reward for you to implement in this piece of software, they also give you reputation. There is also an interesting protocol, um, or rather, I would say like a, a software library called SourceCred, which basically um, checks out all of the contributions that a user may have had in GitHub. So like this is mostly for code contributions. Mm-hmm. And then creates like this huge ranking of uh, who are the persons who are contributing the most to the organization. And so basically, if you tie that to tokens, you can reward people or who are contributing to your software project directly with tokens in a proportional manner. And so I want people to just to make sure that they understand. So if there is a protocol out there, if it's Ethereum or Tezos or whichever one's out there that you guys are, you know, kind of looking at, a lot of them deal with governance and they have tried to do it themselves. And there has been some classic examples of some fairly nasty failures, if you can call it that. And so just so people can understand, you provide, Aragon basically provides with their client is basically a plug and play into that. So those protocols and those projects can just basically have it at the ready and everything is standardized and ready to go, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it depends on, on the protocols. For example, uh, layer one protocols, like you know, basically blockchains themselves, uh, they may have very different needs. For example, um, Tesos or Cosmos or stuff like that. But if you, if you look at uh, broader needs, for example, a decentralized protocol on Ethereum um, or a layer two protocol, it's basically like a plug and play system. Got it. And so, as everyone knows on the show, uh, what I also like to do is delve a little bit deeper into your mind and what you are either reading every day and also possibly listening to in terms of music. 
So if you could, uh, any books or anything that you've read recently that really resonated with you, that you told friends and family about, that was like, wow, this is amazing. It could be crypto or non-crypto related. And then any music that you listen to, I think is also a fascinating way to tell about a person's personality. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of books, uh, something that, well, I actually read this a while ago, but it was re it resonated so much with me, was The Sovereign Individual. It's a, it's a great book that basically uh, predicted all of the things that we're doing with crypto today, but in 1997. It's really fascinating. Um, and I would really recommend it to anyone who is into, into crypto and also people that just want to think about the future of the world. Um, and then in terms of music, uh, I actually I actually listened to um, both a bunch of house and techno. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> yeah, I, I also produce music and DJ. That's like my hobby. Uh, but I also love kind of disco and music from the eighties. It just brings back. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't born in that in that era. Um, I, I wish I was, but it just brings back a lot of um, kind of good emotions. Okay, so for everyone listening, I did not know this about Luis. So, Luis, I actually was a DJ in the past. I DJed for about 10 oh, wow. years. And my passion as well was house and techno. Um, I started back in the late 90s, around 98, 99, uh, with Goa. Um, and then I wow. went to London. I heard Paul Oakenfold play at a club called Home. Um, came back to the States and decided that I had to be a DJ. So my first real gig was in Chicago opening for Armin Van Buren. And then that just transpired to wow. gigs all over the place. And so I did not know that about you. And now I have a new friend who likes this music as well, too. So that is amazing. That's why I ask this question. <laughs> That's amazing. That's super, super cool. Wow. Wow. So if you ever come to the States, um, you know, <laughs> let me know so we can, you know, possibly we'll get a, we'll get a DJ gig together and we'll play and uh, we'll invite everyone in crypto to come. Cause I think that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, and so the last thing I'd like to do, uh, is provide people a way to find out more about Aragon. Um, and if they want to learn how to get involved or if they're running a project and they're kind of having this issue with governance, um, where can they find out more and how can they get involved? Aragon.org has basically everything about the project. Um, and then if you want to chat with the people building it, you can go to aragon.chat. Awesome. So again, this was Luis, the co-founder of Aragon, a project that I have wanted to have on the show for almost a year. Um, and so this is such a pleasure. And I've gotten to learn so much about Aragon and about DAOs and about decentralized governance. Uh, again, this is a project and this is a group that I hear about every single day from different people out there. Um, and so lots of projects are starting to use them. And so please check them out. Uh, remember nothing on basically is investment advice, but check them out and they're working on some great things. And hopefully we can have you on again next year and catch up and see how things are going. Thanks, Louise. Sounds great. Thanks all for having me. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. Arca 
at Arca or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.